Father, we, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, Lord, you would, uh, you would speak by your Holy Spirit as I expound your word, Lord. May it be your thoughts, your ideas, your word, your truth that is conveyed, Lord. And I pray that you would pierce our hearts where they need piercing, bring about change where change needs to come, and do your work in our hearts today, we pray, for your glory. Amen. So we're in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're in verse 17. We finished off the last section, and uh, I just need to... I've got to be careful with these recaps. If I go back and I recap in chapter 1 again, we could be here for 20 minutes before I get to verse 17. But I do need us to just get the flow of the passage from chapter 4. If you recall as we started chapter 4, the tone shifted from Paul teaching us the theology of what has been done for us, what God has done, what the Father planned, what the the Son enabled and which the Spirit has applied to us. And... He went away from this theology with its emphasis, very strongly at the end of chapter 3, this emphasis that, that having said that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, we're not seeking another blessing. What we're seeking is a greater understanding of the blessings that we have. And it is those understandings of what Christ has done, of the hope that is to come, is these kind of understandings that brings about transformation. When we come to chapter 4, he starts to talk about our walk. We need to walk in a manner that is worthy of this calling that has been expounded to us in the first three chapters. And if you look quickly with me, um, in in chapter 4 and verse 1, we have that urge to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. When we hit verse 17 today, we're told that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. When we come to chapter 5 and verse 1, we are to walk, uh, walk in love. And then in 5 and verse 15, we're to look carefully how we walk. And so there is four times in these two chapters, this iterate, reiteration of walking. How we walk, how we live, how we conduct ourselves. And that's Paul's theme here. And as he started in chapter 4, if you remember... He started in chapter 4 by saying that this is the summary of how we should walk. This is what it looks like. Humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we saw how, as he then went from that in verse 4, that this Spirit... This spirit who who gives us unity, gives us unity because we all have the same spirit. We have the same faith, the same baptism, the same Lord and the same spirit within us. And thus the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit that has been one of the most central themes in the entirety of this book. That indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is ours is the basis of our unity. Then when we shift it uh, in verse Um, seven but grace was given we went from the the things that are the same about us because we all have the same spirit to the things that are different about us because we all have the same spirit and so when the spirit indwells me the same spirit of God indwells you so the same power that indwells me is the same power that indwells you but the gift that he's given me is different than the gifts he's given you 
And that's where we have the differences. Not that those differences break our unity. In fact, they create an even greater unity because as he says in this section we just finished last week, we need each other. We minister not for ourselves, but we minister, which of course means to serve. We serve one another with our gifts. And so I need you and you need me. And so the differences that we have because of our different giftings actually creates more unity. But as I said, and this is one of the central themes that I want us to remember coming into this new passage, what this whole section has taught us is that sanctification is not an individual thing solely. For us to mature, we have to do it corporately. I can't lock myself away in a room with the Bible and pray and read my Bible and pray and read my Bible and grow apart from the rest of you. Because the way in which the body grows, the way in which the body functions, is as a whole. So with that whole section behind us, dealing with the corporate nature of sanctification, when we come to verse 17, with all of his emphasis on walking, Paul is now going to reiterate, this is how we're going to walk, or in this case, how we're not going to walk. And he talks about how we live. And now we get down to a bit more of the nitty gritty of the specific things that the Christian life will look like and not look like practically. So that's how we're kind of fitting into this whole chapter. And from verse 17 through to the end of the chapter, we're going to be looking a lot more at what we would call behavioral issues things that we do and things that we don't do, what this walk looks like in a more specific sense, kind of building upon the foundations in those first few verses. So you're going to see nothing in the rest of this chapter, nothing in chapter 5, nothing into chapter 6, that's going to contradict the fact that the Christian walk is characterized by humility and gentleness. Or a gentle humility. That is characterized by patience, by endurance. And that it's characterized by forbearance, by this maintaining of the unity of the spirit in a bond of peace. That's what the Christian life looks like. But some of the specifics of that we're going to be dealing with now. So he says in verse 17, now this I say and I testify in the Lord. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Well, there's a lot here in this verse. Firstly... Why pick on the Gentiles? Of all the books in the Bible, the, the word Gentile wouldn't be used just as a synonym with unbelievers. It would be this book where he's been delineating between the Jew and the Gentile and the differences between them and how things were different in the past and now the similarities in Christ and how the two have been brought together into one body. Paul has been very specific about what he means by Gentiles. And I think that too often when people read this passage and it says you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do, people are immediately thinking in their minds, they're almost translating it to mean non-Christians. But that's not what the passage says. And I think the thing is, is that the Jewish person lived a life that was a life that was morally upstanding. And there are people who are religious, who are morally upstanding. They would not do certain deeds and certain things because that's just not the kind of thing they do. But they're as dead in their sin as the people who do those things. 
And so Paul is not saying that religiosity is somehow better than this. He's not saying that. If you want to be sure about that, go read Romans 1, 2 and 3, where the condemnation grows. And the greatest condemnation is to the religious people who should know better and don't. To the Jew who has a background in faith and yet doesn't believe. That's where the greater condemnation is. So he's not saying that sort of a, a, some sort of religious, morally upstanding kind of behavior is in and of itself okay. But what he is saying is this. We now have a church where the Gentiles, chapter 2, who were once far off, have now been brought near. That means there's a whole bunch of people coming to church who come without a background in religion. Or certainly not in the kind of religion that we're talking about. Now, for us, the implications are huge. We need to have an environment where we can A, welcome, and B, be prepared to handle people who are coming in with a totally non-Christian pagan background. We are entering an era where children now are no longer growing up with Bible stories. Where, where there are kids who, who you know, when, when, when you grew up, the rainbow was what happened with Noah's story, right? Now it means something completely different. And the world is becoming a different place quite quickly. And there are going to be people coming in with all of the sins that were okay out there. And it may well be, and by saying may well be, I'm strongly suggesting it is, the case that we're more used to people coming in who are at least a little bit Christian. If you can see what I'm saying. We're more used to people coming in who can at least say, yeah, you know, I know a bit about Jesus. I've heard this stuff before. They're not saved. They haven't made a commitment. They're not, they're not put their faith in Christ. But they come from some sort of religious background. And boy, is that easier. Is that not more comfortable for some of us sometimes? But the reality is, is that the gospel is for all. And the gospel predominantly goes out to the Gentile world. And the Gentile world, and I think you're better off if you're going to paraphrase it in your mind, in application, we're talking about the non-religious person. People without a Christian background, without a Judeo-Christian heritage of moral values. And we're going to see a whole bunch of people like that. And if we turn our noses up at them when they come as they are, what we're doing is we're rejecting their opportunity to hear the gospel. That cannot, that must not happen. People need to be able to come as they are. Because you see... The unbeliever is not urged by Paul to walk in a manner of any kind. Because they haven't shown evidence of the calling. We who have been called, we who have been saved, there is a manner of walking that is appropriate for us. Why on earth do we expect other people to live that way? They're not called. They don't know what is right and what is wrong. They call good evil and evil good. 
So it's not to be, we're not to be surprised. We're not to go, oh my goodness, this person's turned up looking like that, speaking like this, being like this, thinking that this is right, thinking that this is wrong. When those people come, don't feel threatened, feel excited. Opportunities to preach the gospel. But one thing is clear, that when a person is saved, then it is no longer appropriate for them to live in that kind of way. And I think in church, we've, we've kind of, we've moved those two extremes too much to the middle. We expect too much of people coming in who aren't saved, and sometimes we expect too little of people who are. I also want to give a warning at this stage as well that everything in this book is talking about a transformation. It's talking about us growing in understanding. Paul says, God has done all of this for you. You've been blessed in all of these ways and I'm praying that you'll understand it better. They've been told it, they've been told it again, they've been told it again, but they're growing in their understanding. They're growing in their wisdom. They're growing in their knowledge. And everything that Paul is saying is, is that the transformation of their walk practically goes in, in parallel with the growing in understanding and growing in knowledge. So, we don't want to have a situation either where somebody comes in and one they come along and they, they come in their sin and they come along and finally say you know I want to commit myself to Christ and they, they come and we pray with them and they, they put their place their trust in Christ for salvation they make a commitment to him and we say oh thank goodness that you've done that I've, been, I've got a whole list of things I've been desperate to tell you about for ages it's been really hard to bite my tongue we don't expect people to change in five minutes. We let people grow. And yes, there are times when we need to address sin. And yes, there's times when people need a nudge. And yes, there's, you know, every, always we're preaching against sin from the scripture. People are growing in knowledge and growing in understanding. And the spirit is prompting them through that teaching and that equipping. And it's bringing about transformation. But it, he hasn't finished with me yet. And I know he hasn't finished with you yet. So let's not put a, uh, a requirement or a time scale on people. But at the same time, there should be change. We must no longer walk this way. Now, what Paul is going to say about the way they work is, is profound and important for us to understand for our walk. He says, you mustn't walk as they do in the futility of their minds. Now, we're probably not going to finish to verse 24 today, but I need us to look at the entirety of this section to see the structure. He says, the way you don't want to walk, okay, the no walking way, the not living this way, this is characterized by their minds. In other words, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, you don't want to walk Walk, meaning live, the way you conduct yourselves. Practical living, right? You don't want to live the way they do. And how do they walk? How do they live? How do they practically live their lives? It's all to do with their thinking. Do you see that connection? Right there in that one verse. Don't walk that way which they walk because of their minds. When we go through this section... 
He then uh, shifts in verse 20 and says, but that is not the way that you learn Christ. And he talks about us and our living. And in verse 23, he says that we need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So understand this well. We'll come, probably come to the latter part next week. But understand the structure and the point here well. That when we are talking about what we do and don't do, how we live, how we conduct ourselves, the second we get away from how we think, what we understand and what we know, we are shooting ourselves in the foot and we're setting ourselves up for failure because you don't change by saying you must change, you must change, you must change. Whether you point the finger at somebody else or whether you point the finger at yourself. The change happens through our minds. Our minds need to be cleaned, renewed, changed. The way we understand things, the depth to which we know things. It is in the realm of our minds that transformation happens. I think I've made that clear. I'll probably emphasize it again before we're finished. But it's so important. Now, look here as he continues on. He says, and we'll come back to, I haven't finished verse 17, but I, I want you to see the structure here. In verse 17, don't walk as they do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance. You see the theme? Minds, understanding, ignorance. These are all related words dealing with the same concept. So important. And this is what I love, by the way, in Paul. It's not just about analyzing the one word here and the one verse. It's seeing how it flows together. Seeing the broad points and the broad principles. So the way in that their walk is characterized is their walk is characterized by the futility of their minds. Now, futility here, the word for futility is to do with the fact that the way that their minds are working produces nothing of substance. Imagine you're in a desert and you see a well and you're dying of thirst and you go to that well and you put the bucket down the well and there's nothing but sand. That's futility. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about something that promises much but delivers nothing. And so their minds, and bear in mind, there are a lot of people apart from Christ who in one sense or another have amazing minds and yet their minds are futile because you and your mind could come up with an idea that could completely change the world it could affect people for generation after generation after generation after generation but when your time is up you're still going to meet your maker and that glorious mind that God gave you to think with, to reason with, that mind lied to you. That mind led you to reject Christ. That mind was futile, pointless. It brought death and not life. That's a sobering thought. So the way in which they think is futile because it doesn't bring about what it needs to bring about. It doesn't do what it was designed to do. And he explains this in verses 18 and 19. 
they are darkened in their understanding. So it's not that there is no understanding. It's not that the brain isn't functioning. It's that there is a darkness there. The way in which they think is influenced and affected by darkness. And that, of course, is to be seen in a spiritual sense. They are, and so they're darkened in their understanding. The way that they understand, the way that they reason, they think, has been darkened, alienated from the life of God. Now, these, these phrases are connected, okay? We could almost just draw arrows from one to the other, okay? Their minds are ultimately futile. Why? Because their understanding is darkened. Why is it that their understanding is so dark? Why is it that the light of God isn't affecting their reasoning processes? Why is it that they can't see God in creation? Why is it that they, that they reject the gospel? Why, why, why? Why is, that darkness, why is that darkness there? Because they are alienated from the life of God. It does not matter how clever you are, how bright you are, how much of a genius you are. If you are alienated from God, then there's no spiritual light there. And darkness will permeate your every thought, your every reason. I remember hearing a story once of a, of a professor at a very liberal seminary. And by liberal, I don't mean anything political one way or the other. I mean simply that they reject the, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. They don't believe the Bible is the word of God. And you think there are people being trained for ministry in those kind of places. And someone was asking a question about what Paul was thinking and what Paul thought. And the professor responded with this brief exposition of Paul's thinking regarding salvation and the gospel and faith and, and, and a very kind of almost evangelistic kind of response. And one of the students said, but professor, I didn't know you believed that. And the professor says, who said I did? I'm just telling you what Paul said. And, and that's the reality of it, is that the, the man's mind was bright enough and clever enough to look at Scripture, to analyze it and say, that's what Paul's saying. But he didn't believe it. His understanding was clo cloaked in darkness. Why? Because he was alienated from God. He was there studying and teaching the Bible, and yet all he got was darkness. The sand was coming from the well. Futility. Why? Because Christ was not in him. He did not have a relationship with God. And why is it that they are alienated from God? Because of the ignorance that is in them. So, we've almost got a vicious circle here, haven't we? They can't understand and they can't see because they are alienated from God, but they're alienated from God because they don't understand. And what's going to happen to that wheel? It's just going to keep turning. A person is alienated from God because they don't understand, and they don't understand because they're alienated from God. And why are they alienated from God? Because they don't understand. And why they don't understand? Because they're alienated from God. And that wheel's going to turn and turn and turn, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And, and what's going to happen to it? Well, there's a clue here. There's a clue. 
Because it says one more explanation at the end. Why do they have that ignorance in the first place? Due to the hardness of their heart. Guys, I don't know many people who say to themselves, you know what? I need to know about Jesus Christ. Because if he really rose from the dead, then he is who he claimed to be. And he is God. And I need to submit to him. So I'm going to go and I'm going to dedicate myself to study the resurrection. I'm going to study this man, Jesus, specifically the resurrection. I'm going to see if it's true. And I'm going to dedicate myself to do that for six months. Because it's a tiny fraction of my life. And if it's true, it'll affect me for eternity. How many people do you know who do that and reject Christ? It doesn't happen. Why do they reject Christ? Because they don't want to have to live this way. Christians say, you can't do that. I want to do that. Right? I don't want to have to obey someone. I don't want to have to do as I'm told. I don't want to have to submit to God. It's the hardening of hearts that brings about the ignorance. Now this is, this is a, something that is very specific here that we need to get our heads around. It is not ignorance that causes someone's heart to be hard. It is someone's hard heart that causes them to be ignorant. That is very important. Because sometimes when we reach out to people, and I, and I love apologetics and I love having an answer for people and I love being able to reason with people and that is valuable and it's productive and it's to be encouraged. But at the same time, we need to also remember that for someone to understand something differently, what you're not trying to overcome is a, is a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding. What you're trying to overcome is the hardness of their heart. That's the barrier. That's the hurdle to them submitting to Christ. And that's, that's the, the, the trouble. And sometimes you can win those arguments. And sometimes winning the arguments removes the objections so that people are forced to deal with their hearts. But sometimes you remove the objections and you get to realize that it never really mattered in the first place. And so in verse 19, they've become callous. And, and that's interesting. I, I like the word callous here. Um, some of you may be familiar with the word callous in the sense of calluses on your foot, where you get that rubbing and you get that hard skin. You know, you have an area where, where it was once baby soft when you were a youngster. And years of wearing your hard shoes means that you now have calluses, these hard areas on your, on your feet. And, and essentially, that's what's being spoken of here. In that there is a hardness of their heart towards God. But the implication of the word callous here is a lack of sensitivity to other people. And, and the reality is, is that the Bible talks about how when we love God, and when we understand the love of God, then there is a natural instinctive response for us to love others. Particularly those in the faith. But to love other people. Why? Because we've been forgiven much, and been loved so much, that it would be wrong for us not to forgive and not to love. 
But you see, when somebody is hard towards God and won't receive him and rejects the gospel message, then that hardness of their heart will overflow into other areas of life. And sometimes and often there is a callousness that is towards other people, but also towards ourselves. Now this is important, and this is clear as he continues in this verse, in that this hardness is a hardness that causes us to reject God. It's a hardness that affects other people. But specifically, Paul here is not so much contextually talking about insensitivity to other people, although some versions I know translate it that way, which is why I've, I've dealt with it. But he says here, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. The, the idea being that if you were soft to hear, to listen, to reason, to think about it, then you wouldn't do those things. But because you've hardened yourself against God, those sins become acceptable. You see, sensuality, greediness, and every kind of impurity, finishing verse 19 there, does not happen in a vacuum. I know, I'll go and do this thing that is going to devastate my life with God, affect the brethren, who, you know, my fellow Christians who love me, and it's going to affect my relationship with him and affect my own life and have negative effects. That makes sense to me. No one reasons that way. They're ignorant. Why are they doing what they're doing in ignorance? Because they've hardened themselves. Impurity and sensuality and greediness doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context of the hardening of one's heart towards God. And that, folks, is why the book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Because doing the right thing happens in the light of, in the context of, in the environment of looking to Him, seeing Him, acknowledging who He is, and respecting Him, and submitting to Him. And then we'll live right. And that change and that transformation will happen. And it doesn't, as I said, it won't happen overnight. It happens gradually. We will change the way we see things. We'll change the way we think about things. We will change the way what we consider right and what we consider wrong. And the word will shine its light and our, our understanding will be enlightened and there will be change. But if we harden our hearts towards God... then we give ourselves up to sensuality, to greediness, which covers a lot of things rather than just anything to do with possessions, and to practice every possible kind of impurity. And by the way, before we, we move on from that, and we, it looks like we will get through this, this section now, but he says you must no longer do this, and there is an implication that comes with that, and the implication is that we can do that. Christians fall and they stumble. Faiths are shipwrecked. People who live right can start to live wrong. And it happens. And it happens because of hardness of heart. And so, um, the solution 
Well, that's verse 20 and following. But that's not the way that you learned Christ. Now, this is, a, this is an intriguing phrase, is it not? It's an intriguing phrase. This is not the way you learned Christ. Now, I think sometimes people read the Bible and they're just kind of reading through verses quickly. You kind of miss the implications of, of how this is worded. Hopefully, with the context that we've, we've got the last few minutes, you, you get it now. But it was, he's talking in the previous section about people, non-religious people, who live in an immoral way, in an immoral manner, because of their ignorance... And they are ignorant because they've hardened their heart. They've resisted God, right? And what he's saying is, but when you learned Christ, it's a weird phrase, but he's obviously talking about when they were saved, right? And he's talking about salvation in the sense of learning. If you're like me in your Bible and you've underlined mind, understanding, and, and all these kind of related words, you can understand learned as well. It's all linked together. You became a Christian by understanding the gospel. And when you understood the gospel, did you say, no, I'm not going to submit to that Christ. I don't want to have to live like he tells me to. I don't want to have to accept that I need salvation. I don't want to have to accept that I'm a sinner. What I do is perfectly fine, thank you very much. I'm a good person. No, the very fact that you received Christ shows that you didn't harden your heart to the gospel. In other words, the whole manner of living that he has described in verses 17 to 19 is the exact opposite of the very thing that got you saved in the first place. When you became a Christian, you learned Christ. There was, there was understanding that was gained and it wasn't resisted by a hardness of heart. Do you see how that phrase works in this context? You received Christ because you learned. And he says, but that's the way you learned Christ, assuming, and the, some versions will say if here, the, the Greek construction is such that really you can translate it since. It's if this happened, and we know that it did. That, that's the kind of understanding here. So we say, look, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So if you're a Christian, right? You've heard the message of Christ. You've been taught about Christ. And you've accepted that. And so the very door that brought you into the faith is the very thing that breaks that wheel we were talking about, that cycle. You're ignorant, so you're alienated from God. You're alienated from God because you're ignorant. You're, and the whole wheel, it just keeps on turning, keeps on turning, keeps on turning. Your ignorance leads to alienation, and your alienation is caused by ignorance, and it goes round, and it goes round, and it goes round. But the issue here is the hardness of your heart. And that wheel, that cycle was broken for you and I when our hearts were softened, and we said, I'm a sinner and I need that saviour. That's how we did it. That's how God redeemed us. He saved us through the softening of our hearts that we would receive the truth about Jesus Christ. As is the truth, as, and the truth is in Jesus. So, 
That's how the cycle was broken. And, and, and before we move on, so understand, our Christian life was started with, and thus, implication of the text, should be characterized by a soft-hearted listening to truth. A soft-hearted growing in understanding. A soft-hearted receiving of wisdom. I see this in my life and the life of other Christians all the time. No matter how good we are in our walk and in our faith, there'll be times when we hear something and you can just, you can almost feel the brakes go on. Oh, I don't want to hear that. Don't live that way anymore. That kind of mentality. And, and you see, I think the danger with this passage, okay? The danger with this passage is it, 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 we read through it quickly and it's like, look, those people are really immoral sinners. Don't be like that anymore. Be a Christian. That, that's the passage, right? No, that's not the passage. The point of the passage is that that limitless immorality comes about because of the way someone thinks. And you, in becoming a Christian, broke that cycle of thinking. And the way that the Christian life is now lived is to continue in that new way of thinking. That's the point. Because I know Christians that will look at passages like this and say, well, I'm not extremely off the charts like that. That's not the point. The point is the process. This passage doesn't just speak to us if we're living a, a lifestyle of, of, of extreme immorality. This passage speaks to us every single time we hear the truth and we make our hearts go a little bit harder. Every time we hear that truth and we don't want to hear it. Every time we know that we're wrong and we don't want to accept that we're wrong. Every time we know we're supposed to do something, but that other person has to do their thing first. Every time we harden our hearts, this passage speaks to us. And, and, and here's the danger. And I have seen this in my 30 plus years as a Christian too many times to count. The danger is, is that you can be a, a good Christian good Christian living your Christian lives and not doing anything particularly bad or wrong and seeking to be sanctified and seeking to grow and God can put his finger on areas of your life and you can harden your heart and that hardness can become callous and that hardness can spread and that hardness can grow and you can learn and train yourself and teach yourself to resist God to resist God to resist God to resist God, to resist God and you can end up going back to that previous way of living So what does it look like when we don't do that? This is not the way you learn Christ, assuming you have heard about him, were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And you were taught in him to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, I don't want to have to rush this. I thought I might do the first half this week and the second half next week, but I'm ready for both halves, but I don't want to rush this. We might be a little bit later. But there's three commands here, okay? There's three things. Firstly, to put off. Secondly, to be renewed. And thirdly, to put on. Okay? 
So if we're not doing that, if we're not living that way that we've been talking about, there's three things that we're doing. We're putting off, we're being renewed, and we're putting on. Let's look at those three things. Number one, putting off. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now this, by the way, is exactly what Paul is talking about in growing in understanding. In verse... Um, I'll say it wrong if I guess. Let me turn back. In verse 7, I knew he said verse 8. In verse 7 of chapter 1, right, right back at the beginning, he's saying that we were redeemed in Christ. Okay? Now remember that, if you were here for that sermon in chapter 1, redemption is not simply, you know, being saved. Redemption is a specific term that talks about being bought. A price being paid to redeem us from slavery, to free us from slavery to sin. And sin was our master. We were condemned to, to follow the nature that we had, our sinful nature. But we've been redeemed from that by the blood of Christ. Right? So you cannot tell a non-Christian to put off their old self. Because that's the only self they have. But for us as Christians, we sometimes say, well, that's just the way I am. No, it's not. You're redeemed. You're free. So what you need to do is take off. Put it away. That old person that you were before Christ. Put it away because it belongs to your former manner of life. See the connection there with walking. Don't walk as they do. There was a way of walking that you did. There was a manner of life. And that old nature belonged to that. And it belonged to that old way. And when you submitted to Christ, when you received Christ, you broke that cycle. You were redeemed from the slavery of sin. You were given the Holy Spirit. And you and I, guys, we have the choice to say, you know what? I'm now convicted. I stand convicted of my sin. What am I going to do at this moment in time? Do I harden my heart? Or do I say, that way of living is how I used to be? behind me that's the choice and it isn't a choice when we're confronted with some great immorality if we get confronted with some great immorality we've already hardened our hearts lots of times before we even get there that's how we got there it's the little things that we decide every day hard heart or put off that's the decision so we need to put off the old self. It belongs to our former manner of life, walk, way of living. And it is corrupt through deceitful desires. And we've said this before and we'll say it again. But that modern mantra of follow your heart is the worst advice on the planet. Why? Because your heart's wicked. Our, our natures are corrupt and they've been corrupted by deceitful desires. And that's a lovely phrase. Not a lovely thing. It's a lovely phrase. Because it means that we instinctively want to do things. And why do we want to do things? Why is it when you see that food and you go, Oh, smell that donut. 
you think that when you eat it, everything's going to be just right. And it's deceit. Is, it not, is that not deceit? Because that donut's going to put, give you an extra pound to add to the ones that you were complaining about this morning. It's going to make you feel worse when you were complaining about how bad you were feeling this morning. It's deceit. It's a lie. It's false. And you know what? Sure, that's a humorous example. But it's true of every desire that comes from our wicked hearts. They're deceitful. Oh, this person will complete you. And this will make you feel better. And if you do this, it'll be okay. And it's all a lot of rubbish. It's nonsense. It's lies. It's deceitful. And your heart deceives and deceives and deceives and deceives. And you know the solution to deceit and lies? It's truth. And again, if you like underlining your Bibles, if you like seeing the themes, look how it said in verse 21. As the truth is in Jesus... Put off the deceitful desires. You see that contrast? The truth is in Jesus and the deceit is in our hearts. And the desires in our hearts are telling us that they will do things for us that they will not do. But the one who will speak the truth to us is Jesus. I want to do this. What do you say, Jesus? Because my heart is instinctively deceitful. I want to do this, it seems good to me. But if the scripture says otherwise, harden, submit, harden, submit. Then there's a decision. So we've got to put off this old way of living. The old way of living was animalistic, you know? You're like a dog. Oh, that smells nice, I'll go off over there. I'll follow my nose, so to speak. I mean, is there much difference between the modern mantra of follow your heart and the dog following its nose? Not a lot of difference. But it comes with the illusion that we're more civilized. That our hearts will do what is right. And, and Paul says it's not the case. It's deceitful and you've got to take that old way of living, following your nose, following your heart, doing what makes sense to you, doing what you want to do, doing whatever feels right. <coughs> Put it aside and see what the Lord says. That's a natural following on thing. When you put off that way of going, that way of following your desires that are deceitful, the next thing you're going to have to do is do what's right. And funnily enough, that's exactly what Paul says. Command number two, having put off your old self, he says, be renewed. You see, if your desire is deceitful and it's not true, then there needs to be a changing in the way you think about things. Well, I always used to think that doing this was a good thing because it felt good to me. But now I see in the scripture that it says this. Now what's going to happen? If you submit and don't harden, your mind is renewed. It is made new. It is changed. And this, by the way, as an aside, is why I loathe, not just hate, not just don't like much, I loathe, woe to them, those who want to, to lay hands on people to pray about transformation. You know, let's pray that people will be transformed, I'm not knocking that, but we're not going to bypass the brain in the process. The way in which we are transformed 
is we're transformed through the renewing of our minds. We used to think that was the right way, now we know it's not, so now we're going to take that new information and say, I now know that that's not the right way and that this is the right way. That mind is being changed. You can't just pray for people and expect that process not to happen, right? And you say, well, is it not good to pray for the renewing of the mind? Yeah, it's great to pray for the renewing of the mind. But I'm not going to sit down in front of that piano and play Rachmaninoff's third because I've never had a piano lesson in the last 30 years. And I don't expect God to do that. If I want to go and play some symphony on the piano, I've got to start having lessons and have them quickly and have them intensively and have them regularly and consistently. And I've got to learn. And if we want our minds renewed by the truth that is in Christ, we are going to have to be people of, our, of the word. We cannot bypass it. Because you know what? Your mind can easily be Christianized without being Bibleized. And too many churches have people in them whose minds are Christianized and therefore what is right and what is wrong is what's acceptable in their church, their denomination, their circle. And I tell you, if you're in one of those kind of places and you start to try and be Bibleized, you're a problem. Because the one thing you don't want is people rocking boats. No, we've got to be people of the Bible. I want you to rock my boat. I want you to rock everybody else's boat. Christianity is not clean or comfortable, folks. We're pursuing Christ. And we're pursuing his word. And we want to know what his word says. And I understand that that's what you say, Anthony. But I need to find that out for myself. And I'm not there going, oh no, we've got another free thinker. I'm there going, yay! Somebody else who's committed to studying the word. Because there's only two possibilities. Either I'm right and you're going to end up agreeing with me when you come to the truth. Or you're going to come to the truth and you're going to end up correcting me. Either is good. But that's the answer. The answer is we put off this old way of thinking and then we are renewed in our minds, in the spirit of our minds. Oh, that phrase. Ah. Quickly, spirit of our minds. The spirit and the mind in modern Christianity is made into these two separate things. And that's where I was going with this thing. The spirit and the mind is made into two separate things. So let's just pray that the spirit wafts over us and does this kind of work. Oh, and here's our mind and we'll study. Like they're separate. They're not separate. Our minds are spiritual things. And the spirit of God brings about... He's in us, right? We have him. We all have him equally. We all have the same power that each one of us if we're Christians. But what we need is for that spirit who is in us to use his power to change us. And how does he change us? In our minds. And that's what it's talking about here when it talks about the spirit of your minds. Your spiritual minds is another way of saying it. Your spirit characterized minds. And finally, verse 24, the third command, and put on. So, we've taken off, and now we're renewing our minds, but not merely renewing them, but we're putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true 
righteousness and holiness. So when we think differently, the life that we live, the thing that we put on, is this new way of thinking and this new way of living that is in harmony with God and His truth and His word. And we have to put that on. So we're now thinking differently and from that thought we can now live. You can't just think and not live. Because your mind could be renewed and you could still say, you know what, I have my mind renewed now and I now know that this is wrong but I still want to do it. So there has to come with that understanding the determination to put on. And the determination not in the sense of, but in the sense of deciding to put on this new life, this new way of living. And, and all of this has to be seen in the broader context of Ephesians. Everything we've done in those first three chapters, you know? You were, you were chosen by God, you were redeemed by Christ, you have the Spirit of God within you, you've been empowered. That's what we're talking about here in the nitty gritty. Those principles that we saw are here in the nitty gritty. Do you want to talk about the power of God? You know what? Somebody's in a wheelchair, they get out of the wheelchair, whoopee doodah. Let me tell you something greater than that. Somebody who has hardened their heart to God and is stubborn, being convicted of their sin, having their mind changed and walking differently. That's the power of God. That's the power of God that we want to see in our lives. In our church, in our community. That's the power of God at work. And we have been taught by Paul that we are in Christ. That is our identity. And that's why he says in this last verse, created after the likeness of God. I hope that... For those of you who've been on this journey with us, all the way through Ephesians, you come to this passage, very well known in many regards, and you see it in all new light. You see that you are what God has done for you and in you and through you, and that this is what it needs to look like practically. This is what it was for. It was for you to no longer live that way, but now to live this way, to have your mind changed and to say, I now associate myself with Jesus Christ. And therefore, though I want to do this, I understand that that is deceitful and the right thing to do is that. I want to be vindicated, but I've got to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling by which I've been called, which means gentle humility. I want to be angry about this that was done to me but I've got to forbear because that's the walk that Christ has me live it's those kind of decisions where we've got to say heart's hard or heart's soft resist or submit and funnily enough as he continues on through he will develop all of these themes and we'll pick it up next time in verse 25 where we will next time be doing a passage which is perhaps one of the most misunderstood in Ephesians so far. Let's pray. Father, when you convict me, may I not be hard. May I submit. Change me, God, I pray. Amen.